combine the techniques was a good way to study the aha moment, the eureka moment, because we wanted to isolate it and identify it in the brain in both space and time. It has to, we had to see what's happening in the brain at the moment and then identify what parts of the brain were involved. We were interested in uh, the idea that for some people, the report that an aha moment is like an emotional rush. I think creative people, they like to bounce around crazy ideas. It doesn't mean they'll try to implement it. Hi, I'm Paul Fairweather. And I'm Chris Meredith. And welcome to the Common Creative Podcast. This week we have an amazing guest, John Cunios, a neuropsychologist, neuroscientist, and he has just blown Chris and I away. <laughs> yes, he's a professor of psychology at Drexel University in the States, um, and we've heard he's got some really interesting research on how people have aha moments, and we learned so much about that, but also how you can promote your own creative thinking, increase your abilities to enhance that aha moment for you. Yeah, and look, Chris, we've had you know, recently our little mini-season on neurocreativity, and, and that finished a, a month or so ago. But John has given us a fantastic summation and inadvertently he has brought together so many of the different things that our other guests have spoken to. And as well as that, insights that I've never ever heard before about creativity and I keep on repeating this time and time again, it keep, amazes me that we have such incredible guests that keep on opening up our eyes to creativity and you and I have done a fair bit of thinking about creativity over our time. <laughs> we have indeed yet more learnings and, and if, if you're after other insights beyond creativity if you happen to be a fan of quaternion multiplication we've got some insights about that too <laughs> okay let's uh, let's get him in let's get him in <laughs> John Kudios a huge welcome to the common creative we're very excited to have you on this show um, it feels like you're right at the epicenter of what we're trying to find out about the human brain how it creates ideas and how that can be applied to our lives and in the world of business. Huge welcome. Thanks, thanks for inviting me. Yes, uh, John, welcome from me as well. So John, maybe we could just start out for our listeners for you to give us a bit of a potted history about how you got to where you are. Oh, okay, yes. Well, I'm a uh, originally trained as a cognitive psychologist and then retrained as a cognitive neuroscientist uh, starting in the late 1980s or so with the, uh, the revolution in neuroimaging. So. Uh, we really didn't have good ways to study what's going on inside the brain until the sort of mid to late 1980s when neuroimaging technologies started to come online and then they started to really take off in the 1990s. So we could look inside the brain, under the hood, so to speak. And that sort of revolutionized a lot of the study of, uh, of thinking, uh, of uh, cognition, etc. So around that time, I... Uh, I started to become interested in the topic of uh, insight or aha moments. Insight is the term the psychological scientists have used for aha moments or eureka moments for a, a long time. Um, the term insight goes back to the German gestalt psychologist around the time of World War I who initially identified this phenomenon of sudden realization of a, uh, a creative idea or a solution to a problem. 
and they identified this as something worth doing research on. So they they were originally interested in visual illusions. You look at a sort of an ambiguous picture, and it could look like it's one thing, and then you realize, oh, no, it's something else. And they identified this as being related, and this was actually quite a leap on their part, as being the basis for problem solving. So you're looking at a problem, you're stuck, and then at some point it suddenly pops into awareness that you've been looking at it all wrong, that, that you've been, you need to see it in a new light. And once you see it in this new light, then uh, the solution becomes almost obvious. And uh, so they, they made that leap from perception to problem solving. And then starting many years later, when we could do brain imaging uh, with, with, uh, in complex situations, we started looking at what's happening in the brain when, uh, when people have these aha moments. Uh, so uh, that's, so we're, we go all the way up to around the year 2000 or 2001 when uh, I was uh, at the University of Pennsylvania at the time with a colleague, Mark Beeman, and uh, my uh, research technique of uh, my expertise was in electroencephalography or EEG where we put electrodes on a person's head and we can measure the electrical activity of the brain. And his particular expertise was in uh, functional MRI, fMRI, in which we can get uh, really precise measurements of where things are happening in the brain. So he was interested in insight also. And uh, with fMRI, you get an idea of, you have really good what's called spatial resolution. You could look at where things are happening in the brain, but the temporal resolution, that is when things happen in the brain, is more modest. And with EEG, you get really precise temporal resolution. You could tell exactly where some, when something's happening in the brain, but you have more modest spatial resolution. You're not as, not as good at telling you where something's happening in the brain. So together we decided this was a, 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 to combine these techniques, techniques was a good way to study the aha moment, the eureka moment, because we wanted to isolate it and identify it in the brain in both space and time. It has to, we have to see what's happening in the brain at the moment the person has this experience and then identify what parts of the brain were involved. And the, the real challenge is that, you know, as we know, as everyone who's had a eureka moment, which I think is almost everyone, whether you realize it or not, uh, these are often in uh, complex situations where you, you solve some complicated problem or you have some real-world resolution, uh, a recognition of some uh, new perspective. And, you know, we can't chase people around and uh, predict when they're going to have a eureka moment and then stuff them in a brain scanner. It doesn't work <laughs> that way. So we, we had, uh, and, and these problems are too comp, these real-world problems are too complex. So what we had to do was devise simple little puzzles that could be solved fairly quickly and then give people lots and lots of them while they're in a brain scanner so that we could look at... So, sort of, you might think of it as being sort of... Uh, uh, in biology, we have, you know, they're, they're trying to cure diseases and they have a mouse model. It might be a mouse model of Alzheimer's. So it's a small-scale model of the complex thing you want to study. And we developed our so-called mouse model for aha moments... Uh, in which we could create, we had these little puzzles. We could look at when people solve them with an aha and when they solve them in a more deliberate analytical fashion and compare the brain activity 
and identify what's unique to the aha moment, uh, which we did. And for and this was published originally. The first publication was in 2004 uh, for this. And for the kinds of puzzles we used, it was a burst of activity in the right temporal lobe of the brain, just above the right ear. Ooh. For other kinds of puzzles, it could be in somewhat different places. But the key feature is that it's a sudden burst of brain activity. So this subjective feeling that, ah, you know, we, can, we understand now, or they have this new idea, that is, um, uh, that really is sudden. It does correspond to a sudden burst of, of brain activity. It's not just that it has emotional impact and we feel like it's sudden. It really does pop into awareness all of a sudden. And that was sort of the, the initial big finding. And from there, we looked at uh, what kinds of factors promote insights or suppress them. What are the, the, the brain processes that lead up to having the aha moment? Uh, and which of these processes can be manipulated to increase or decrease uh, the number of aha uh, solutions or ideas you have? John, I'm trying to picture the moment where you thought about bringing fMRI scans and EEGs together. I'm, I'm hoping both of you went, oh, aha, that's what we've got to do. <laughs> well, actually, actually, there, there was sort of something like that. So the, the, uh, my colleague, Mark Beeman, had, um, he sent me by email the fMRI results, these brain maps. And I had the, the EEG maps all right already. And I compared them, and it was, wow, there's something... In common, they're the same. We're getting the same brain area popping up. And it was, uh, so that was quite a, a eureka moment right there. Yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. What's surprising about this, I imagine, is it's, it sounds like it's very polar. There's a, there's a way of solving problems deliberately and methodically, and that's sort of type A. And then there's a second way of solving problems, which involves this burst of brain activity. It's not a continuum from the sound of it. It's either this or that. Is that correct? You know, that's a really good question, and I, I don't have a definitive answer to that. So, um, in a sense, yes, you either have the aha moment or you don't. But that aha moment can come while you're working on a problem in what we call an analytical fashion, the sort of deliberate, methodical fashion. It might not. You might have the, this eureka moment uh, while you're uh, taking a shower, while you're asleep. It could wake you up while you're asleep. Um, and sometimes these ahas, these eurekas, are um, really uh, in your face. I mean, it's like you know a bucket of ice water thrown in your face all of a sudden. Ooh. Or sometimes they're subtle, uh, and you know it does slip into awareness suddenly. But at the same time, it's not. Uh, you could almost miss it as as an insight. And in fact, many people have uh, aha moments and they don't even realize it. I, I remember number of years ago, I was reading the, I think it was the alumni uh, magazine for the University of Michigan, and they were interviewing a, uh, uh, I think he was a neuroscientist, and he had won some award, and they asked him, uh, did you have any great aha moments that propelled your thinking forward? And he said, no, 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 it was all incremental, deliberate, hard work over many years. 
And then later in the article, he's telling a story about how he was in the shower, and he suddenly <laughs> had this great idea, and he ran to the lab, and you know, he, he, he started doing this work, and it, it revolutionized his whole line of research. So he didn't even recognize that as being the source, sort of a real pivot point in his work. And often we don't recognize, you know, we, we pay attention to the years of slogging away and the incremental advances, and these, these aha moments, these eureka moments can sometimes be unrecognized or easily forgotten or not recognized for what they are. Because mm-hmm. if you're in the shower or, you know, half asleep, how could you attribute that to a piece of work? It seems... There's a logic to not noticing an aha moment in the Yeah, I, I, I don't know how. Well, actually, I do kind of know how. All right, so uh, we, we recently published a paper where um, we looked at, we wanted to look at sort of the, the, um, the emotional impact of having an aha moment. So everybody talks about what are the processes that lead up to an aha moment. And one of the understudied things are, what are the consequences of having an aha moment? What happens after you have an aha moment? And in this particular study, we were interested in uh, the idea that for some people, some people report that an aha moment is like an emotional rush, that it's pleasurable, that it can be almost a psychedelic experience that you have the sudden insight and everything looks different. You understand it's sort of expansion of, of, uh, of awareness, of consciousness. Not everyone reports that. Right? So we, uh, we did one of our um, EEG studies, and we looked at the reward system of the brain. So the brain has um, a system for uh, what's called uh, liking and wanting by neuroscientists. So the, the wanting part is craving. You want the delicious food. You want whatever. The liking is the pleasure you get after that. And uh, so people's reward systems can, are tuned differently. Some people uh, crave things all the time. They want things. They're, they have, they're high in what's called reward sensitivity. And they get a lot of pleasure when they, when they achieve these things. Other people, they're a little cooler. And they, they don't get strong cravings or strong rewards. So we compared the brain activity of people who are high and low in reward sensitivity when they had these aha moments. And what we found is that the people who are uh, low in reward sensitivity, they have aha moments, they have just as many as the people who are high in reward sensitivity. But uh, the people who are high in reward sensitivity get a burst of activity in the reward center of the brain about a tenth of a second after the aha experience. So it's sort of like you have the aha and then a fraction of a second later, this burst of, of pleasure or neural reward. And so for some people, uh, now we haven't done sort of what I think is the, the, an obvious study. We have not yet done this. Uh, you ask, if you ask people to remember their past aha moments, I'd be willing to bet that the people who have that burst of reward center activity are going to remember them. It's going to be more salient because it was, you know, it's sort of like the difference between popping an aspirin and taking a powerful psychedelic drug or an opioid or so you remember the opioid you may not remember the aspirin that you popped yeah, you know. yeah. i thought yes. you john we were going to say the experiment you haven't done was turning the fmri vertically so you can actually have it in a shower 
Uh, <laughs> that would be that would be problematic. Well, for one thing, you, you'd uh, it has the MRI has uh, powerful magnets, so you'd need all plastic tubes and uh, faucet and all that. But my my, que- my question was, and and in some ways you just sort of answered this, and maybe you know it's it's the answer you sort of described the people that remember the aha moments. But you know, is there any indication of the type of person? that might have more aha moments rather than necessarily remembering them um, like a precedent? You know, is there any, anything that leads up to it that you... Yes, yes. I think some of the, the, the same things that um, can make a given individual have more or fewer aha moments also determines differences between people, right? So we know that... Um, People, uh, and this again goes to other brain imaging studies, uh, people who have more aha moments uh, have um, less frontal lobe brain activity. We call it hypofrontality. So the frontal lobe of the brain is the sort of executive control system of the brain. It, uh, it sets goals. It structures your thinking and your behavior. It, uh, it suppresses distracting ideas. People who are high in sort of high executive function uh, brains, uh, they're very organized and uh, hard to distract. People who have less frontal lobe activity, the breast, rest of the brain goes rogue, and it's sort of undisciplined. You can have uh, you're, they might be easily distractible. Um, they have lots of uh, wandering thoughts, wandering minds, um, but that. Uh, that sort of turbulent mental activity, things can click. They can gel and click and form aha moments. So, the, so you know, the, the, the typical person who's uh, very, very organized um, and, and strategic and disciplined and focused, they're less likely to have aha moments than people who seem to be you know, messier, more distractible. But one thing to keep in mind is that any given individual, their, uh, their cognitive control, their, their executive processing, it can, it can wane and wax during the day uh, for various reasons. So, you know, if you don't have uh, enough sleep, you're going to be less organized, less focused. Uh, that cup of coffee might fix that. Um, people have... Uh, different peak times of the day. So, for example, some people are morning people when they're at their sharpest in the morning. Others are, are uh, night people. Uh, if you're, at, if you're a, a morning person, you'll do your best analytical thinking in the morning, and you'll ha- do your most creative thinking in the evening. And if you're a night person, you do your most creative thinking in the morning and your best analytical thinking at night. Uh, so that, you know, th- that's uh, another difference between people is whether you're a morning person or a night person. But you have to adjust your thinking. You want to do the right kind of mental work at the right time of day sure. in order to capitalize on, on these differences. Um, a, a, a drink of alcohol. Not too much alcohol, but a drink of alcohol has been shown to increase uh, aha moments. Uh, if you have more than a little bit, you won't be able to, to think at all. But, but uh, a little bit. I mean, I'm not recommending that people use this as a method to uh, to have ideas. But if if you're going to be, uh, uh, you know, having a beer or a glass of wine or something like that, that might be a good time to to uh, uh, to give yourself 
It's an opportunity to to solve problems. And that suggests a point. I mean, alcohol is very social thing. Often do that with somebody else. So it is having other people around likely to promote an aha moment. Or actually, does it help to be by yourself uh, with that glass of wine? Um, what do you think? Do other people help? Well, that depends. So uh, certainly, if you're by yourself, uh, that kind of isolation allows one's attention to, uh, to point inward. So, I mean, that, this is one of the reasons people tend to have uh, eureka moments in the shower. In the shower, you know, presumably you're alone, you know, maybe <laughs> not, not everyone, but presumably you're alone. And um, the, the, you can't see much because your, your eyes are filled with water. Uh, there's white noise. Um, and it feels pleasant. You, because the water's warm, you don't feel the, the, the boundary between your, your skin and the air around you. And you know no one's going to bother you. And that can lead to uh, people tend to have a lot of insights in the shower. So that kind of isolation under the right circumstances uh, can lead to a homelessness. On the other hand, uh, being in a group can, or even with a single individual, uh, with another individual, can promote insights depends on who the individual is. So uh, one of the most powerful ways to improve or increase the, the likelihood of having insights is to elevate a person's mood. When you're in a positive mood, you're more likely to have eureka moments. And mm-hmm. so if you're with someone who puts you, makes you feel good, puts you in a good mood, then you're more likely to have insights. If you're, if you're under stress, you're talking with, the, you know, with a really um, mean boss or something like that, uh, you're going to clam up, your, your thoughts will dry up, uh, so here, here's one way to think of it is in terms of, of what psychologists call psychological safety. Mm-hmm. So imagine you're an early human on the savanna in Africa, and way off in the distance, you see a lion. So immediately, you experience anxiety and mental tunnel vision, and actually literal tunnel vision. You can't take your eyes off the line. So you immediately start thinking in a very deliberate fashion. You start thinking, does the line see me? Can the line hear me? Am I upwind or downwind from the line? If I move, will the line detect me? Uh, is there somewhere I can, like a tree or something I can escape to? And under those circumstances, you have a sense of threat, and you cannot afford to make a mistake. Because you can't make a mistake, because of that threat, you have to uh, think very deliberately and analytically. So let's say you get away from the line, you go back to your clan, you're at night, you're in a cave with a, a fire and you have food and you have your loved ones there and the cave is safe and everybody's well fed and, and relaxed and all that. Uh, under those circumstances, the sense of threat is very low and you can afford to take chances. There's no risk. There's no risk if you say something stupid or crazy or off the wall or whatever. And that's sort of the stuff of creativity. You can say things which might be wrong, which might be crazy, and you have nothing to lose. So uh, usually that's when you you experience positive mood. When you're in a positive mood, you you feel good because there's no threat. So that's why why, uh, insights tend to happen when you're in a positive mood rather than when you're anxious. Now, there, there are exceptions. There are exceptions. Sometimes 
there are certain rare individuals that when they're on under a uh, experience extreme threat, they can have very creative solutions to get out of the threat. The general pattern, though, is yeah. positive mood leads to yeah. insight, creative insight. John, I just had I had a question, just sort of going back to the alcohol, and I suppose that makes sense because you know alcohol does sort of well, well alcohol does relaxes you, yeah. yeah so and and and, and expands attention. Yeah. And you also have, you know, less judgment. So it's, you know, it's sort of yeah. maybe subduing the prefrontal. What about mm-hmm. caffeine? Does it do sort of the opposite where it sort of gets other parts firing more? Uh, that might well, be- you know, there's no clear data about that, uh, about caffeine. So it depends on, on your level of arousal. So uh, there's something called the Yerkes-Dodson Law. And it looks at performance as a function of physiological arousal. So if you're very under aroused you're you're very drowsy say you can't do much of anything very well if you have a cup of coffee then your arousal goes up and you become more effective more efficient more uh productive if you but then if you have you know like three double espressos you're going to be wired you're not going to be doing anything very effectively right so it's not a matter of whether stimuli uh, stimulants like coffee help or hurt. It depends on getting into that middle zone of arousal mm. to be most effective and efficient. And if you're already there, coffee's going to bump you up to be too aroused. Mm. If you're under aroused, a cup of coffee will bump you up to the optimal zone. Right, right. Okay. Actually, I love that thing about the fact that, you know, you have been in a positive mood because it just wouldn't really go well with the whole eureka moment if you were like depressed, like... Oh, you, you, Eureka! Oh, you know. Yeah. Well, in fact, in fact, people who are uh, depressed, they tend to get stuck in cycles of rumination, where yeah. they get stuck on a thought, and it, they just go round and round and round, and it becomes very hard uh, for them to to break out of that. And in fact, uh, there have been studies of of uh, creative writers, for example, who have a lot of insights and are very creative, but they also tend to be depressive. And uh, sometimes they tend to be alcoholics, um, but the the um, uh, the paradox there is, is is it's not really a paradox. What it is is they they go in sort of the depths of depression, and then it's when they're coming out of that that they tend to get their ideas. And when they've come in far enough out of it, then they can actually write them down. But while they're clinically depressed, they really don't do much of anything. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the swings of, of emotion, of mood, that can, that can, you can use experiences you had while you're depressed to, uh, as the basis later on for creative ideas. Um, we, we launched the whole topic of creativity in business, which is a, a, a key area of focus for us. And you mentioned in passing that business isn't very good at embracing or accepting the idea of aha moments Tell us more about that. Why do you think that's the case? And, and how could we advance the cause of those breakthrough, um, breakthrough thinking in business? Yeah. So, uh, for one, I think that a lot of uh, people in business are afraid of creative people. So, in principle, they like the idea of creativity. They like having creative ideas which they can sort of take or leave at their, at their uh, discretion. Um, but they tend to be afraid of cre- creative people because uh, there, there is this, I think, incorrect view 
that creative people are a little bit crazy, unpredictable, uh, they're risk takers, they want to change things just for the sake of changing them, and that that, that can be very threatening. Um, and actually, you know, I'm not aware of any evidence that any of that is true. I think creative people, they like to bounce around crazy ideas. It doesn't mean they'll try to implement all of them. Okay? Um, and so I, so I think there is that, that, that prejudice. And I think there's also a, uh, a view um, that uh, creative people are kind of a dime a dozen, you know? Uh, people produce creative things. Um, you know, the, so for example, if you, if you think of, uh, of uh, Hollywood movies, right? Uh, it isn't the writers who get five, ten million dollars per script. It's, you know, it's, it's mostly the, the actors, some of which are, are good, some of which, of whom are not that good, right? Um, and I'm sure the studio executives get enormous salaries. The writers, I mean, they can do okay if they're, if they're successful, but they don't, they don't get the big money that, yeah. that some of the others get. So I think there, there's sort of this view that, uh, you know, these creative people, they're sort of um, uh, strange little... Uh, unpredictable people they don't really know how the world works and you know it's it's uh, we executives who uh, really understand how the world works and can 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 make everything happen and we should get the big money uh, and again that you know in, in terms of, of, of Hollywood for uh, as just one example uh, that that really doesn't wash because it's it's the creatives who make the movies successful Ooh. Not you know you can have terrible movie and it if you market it well if you market it creatively it it may make a little money in the short run but it's not going to be a big hit it's generally good movies that make a lot of money yeah, actually um, John just on that comment you're talking about uh, you know creatives are misunderstood one of our previous guests I think it might have been Linda Ray said that she says to people I'm just speaking in draft. Um, to, to make it clear that you know it's, it's this is not what we're going to do. This is just an idea. So she says, yeah. speaking or thinking in draft. Um, John, is there is there some way that you know that, that you've noticed of changing this perception in business? Like you know, you, you've sort of said what the problem is. You know, what's an approach to to sort of fix that? There there isn't much that can be done. I think I think the way uh, 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 there's one study. Um, I think it was done by Jennifer Muller, a business professor. She had people uh, rate how appropriate uh, hypothetical candidates would be for leadership roles. And uh, in some cases, they were, these people were, some of them were described as creative. And in, in other situations, they were described as creative leaders. And if you describe them as having creative leadership, then they're much more acceptable than if you describe them as being creative. So the idea is you, you make them sound not creative, but resourceful. Okay? And then so you, you have to change the language. You have to change uh, how you describe these people to reduce the perceived threat that these people, um, you know. And another situation is uh, there's a story we tell in, in, in our book, The Eureka Factor, about uh, Benjamin Franklin who's certainly one of the most creative people ever. I mean, all of the, 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 the things he, uh, 
invented and developed and organizations he started. And he, uh, he started the, the first public library in the United States, the first uh, fire department, all of these things. And he found that when he, made, he started these organizations to promote various uh, public causes, and he found that when he uh, made suggestions and said, you know, I had this idea, why don't we do this? Uh, the, other, the other people in the organization would, would get, you know, they would be afraid, they would look down on him, they would say it's not a good idea. But if he said, so-and-so told me this idea, which sounds pretty good, what do you think? Then they love the ideas, right? So you, you, you have to, you know, you, there are ways to slip in creative ideas without causing feelings of threat. Because, of course, if you make someone feel threatened, they become even less creative. Yeah. Actually, I, I, I use the word uh, often substitute creativity for ingenuity. The definition Ingenu- of, that's a good one. I like that. Yeah. I like that. Yes. Well, the definition is clever, inventive, and original. So, uh, but people are more, you know, likely to, you know, to to accept that, you know, if you're being ingenious. Um, so, um, hmm. I have a, I have a theory that that one of the blockages business builds itself up on the basis of repeating things, processes, systems, procedures, and and mm-hmm. so long as your markets are stable creativity can be disruptive because we, we get successful by doing more of what we've done before but it seems to be a lot of markets are changing faster than ever so businesses need to change but they're not geared up to accept new thinking yet uh, and that's yes. why there's a friction here um, well the, the, there's in um, in uh, in psychology neuroscience biology and artificial intelligence there's a distinction between exploration and exploitation so you can think of it in terms of an animal foraging. An animal might be like a squirrel might have a cache of, of acorns and stay in one place and exploit that. And then when the acorn cache is starting to run low, at what point does the squirrel decide to go find another cache of acorns or another place to find food? So some people stick with the exploitation too long before they break away to look for something new. And other people might be too willing or too ready to leave their, their cache of acorns to find something else. And that, that balance is very hard to achieve. And some people, you know, they jump the gun too quickly and others stick with what they have too quickly. And this is sort of, you know, this is an issue right now with, uh, with Facebook and Meta. Uh, you know, they're, they're going all in with uh, virtual reality. And the question is, is, is uh, Zuckerberg making that leap too soon? and leaving a profitable business too soon, investing too much in something before it's, uh, they're ready for it and before it's necessary, or is he doing the right thing? And, you know, time, time will tell. But, uh, but Zuckerberg, though, it's very interesting. He's one of these people who seems to uh, have a problem with creativity. So a few years ago, he gave, a, I think it was 2017, he gave a commencement address at Harvard University. And he said a lot of good things about, you know, uh, using the internet to build communities and bring two people together and all that stuff. But he said one thing which caught my eye as being just plain wrong. And that is he said that um, this whole idea of the eureka moment, an aha moment, where a person gets an idea and that, that can drive a, a, a business or, you know, anything forward. He says that's wrong. And he was talking about, for example, in the movie The Social Network, where 
someone has this idea for Facebook, wasn't him in the movie, and they grab a marker and they, they write out an equation on glass on a window. And he says, he says, the movies get it all wrong. People don't write on glass. They don't get these ideas and write on glass. Um, and so it, he's just wrong uh, you know, about that. There are so many examples from history of people having fantastic ideas as an aha moment. I wrote a piece about this that was in the New York Times. And uh, so uh, there, there are examples of, of scientists having great ideas and um, uh, the, the, the great uh, Irish mathematician uh, Hamilton was walking along a uh, canal in Ireland in the early 19th century. And he was struck by this aha moment that with such force that he felt it was like an electric current going through his head. And he, was, uh, he felt the need to, to document it, and there was a bridge, stone bridge, and he pulled out a penknife, and he scratched the equation uh, on the, uh, in the stone of the bridge. And it became known as, uh, this is what's called quaternion multiplication, which is actually a big deal in, in uh, physics and engineering. I don't know. It, the math goes way beyond what, what I know. Um, but so, you know, he, he didn't write it on glass with a marker, but he had <laughs> a penknife and stone. And, and if, it, if he had been 150 years later, he would have posted it on Facebook, you know. Oh, um, uh, my, my, my personal is uh, napkins in the restaurants. Never be afraid yes. to grab a napkin. Scribble, like, that's a good idea. Absolutely. That. That's a good one. <laughs> Absolutely. And people often feel when they have these aha moments that they're so impactful that they feel they need to write it down and document yeah. it. Uh, n- not not just to remember it, but also to sort of immortalize it right there on that, yeah, that yeah, piece yeah. of paper. I, I love the fact that Hamilton's eureka moment was carved in stone. Like, yes. It was, it was, <laughs> well, <laughs> actually, actually, the, the, it, it eroded away, but the Irish put up a plaque on that spot on there, which is itself starting to erode. They'll probably right. put, a, put a new one. But, they, uh, got, they got the wrong idea. They should have just put a whiteboard up there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Um, John, uh, we, we've unfortunately uh, reached time, and we could literally talk all morning if, if you had all afternoon to uh, chat with us. But uh, it's been absolutely fantastic. And what I really loved about it um, is that you know we've had this this little mini season on neurocreativity, and you have inadvertently brought so many of the other different ideas together. So it's been really uh, fantastic. Uh, and yeah, so it's really so I, I can't thank you enough for. Uh, for your contribution today. It's been really good fun. Thanks for inviting me. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much, John. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> what, a, a, what a lovely guy and what a bright guy with so much interesting stuff about creativity. Um, if you're listening in now, I hope you're feeling that same sense of, maybe you're feeling, aha, well, I've learned something amazingly new. Well, just after we finished, we asked him if he had a creative pursuit, and he he did rightly say that his creative pursuit was his his, his work and his writing and his his lab. But he was uh, he loved composing music, so um, let's hope he gets back to that at some stage. But yeah, look, absolutely fantastic. Uh, I love the analogies, the metaphors, the insights, um, the the aha moments, you know, the yes. moments. Uh, 
absolutely fantastic so listen if you've enjoyed this episode um, we'd love to hear from you please give us a rating hopefully a a 5 out of 5 rating if you've enjoyed it Um, share your comments in the comments Uh, but most of all tell your friends about this Um, the more you you post stuff about it the more you share this episode uh, the more chance we've got of spreading the word about creativity in business please tune in uh, next week to the Common Creative Podcast bye for now we'll see you soon